The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. You know, one of the things about being a pastor that's difficult is you kind of take a, a photograph of your life and put it up for everybody to see, especially your weaknesses. And I've shared with you one of my weaknesses is um, I love soda. Uh, not the diet kind, the regular full strength kind. And uh, I actually said to Trish the other day, oh, a few weeks ago, I said, Trish, you know, if I had to decide between giving up soda and giving up food, it would it'd be a tough call for me. And uh, I know, don't judge, don't judge, but um, I'm a week free of it again, you know, so, but uh, one of the reasons, you know, drinking soda is not a sin, but for me, it's, it's a really stupid thing to do. Um, a lot of times at night, uh, once we get the kids in bed, uh, Trish and I, you know, limp over to the couch and we, we, we explode onto it. We just lay down and, and are all over it. We're sprawled out. We turn on the TV and Trish will say, do you want some popcorn? Which my answer is always, yes, of course. And a part of eating popcorn um, is, you, is, is pop, right? It's in the name, popcorn. And soda just doesn't, soda doesn't, doesn't do it for me. And so, so I need a pop when I'm eating my popcorn. And uh, what will happen is, is we'll be watching a TV show, one of our favorite shows, and 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 what will happen? I'm just exhausted from the day, so I'll, I'll not off for like three to five minutes, and then I'll wake up and we'll finish the show, and I'm tired, and we'll go upstairs, and I'll lay down, and you know what happens? You can't fall asleep, right? I'm revitalized, and I'm sitting in bed trying sleep, 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 which always works, right? And uh, I'm sitting there trying to fall asleep. And then after an hour passes and then two hour passes, I'm starting to do leg lifts in the bed, trying to do whatever I can to get the energy out. And I'm in denial. I'm like, it's not the soda. That's not the reason I'm still awake. That can't be it. Well, that, that, that slowly tapers away as it gets to like two and a half hours and three hours and three and a half hours. And at this point, I'm angry, right? And I'm like, I will never do that again. I will never drink soda at night ever again. As long as I live, I will never do it. And it lasts a day or two. But then my wife says, do you want popcorn? And we know that pop is part of popcorn. And so you got to have pop with your popcorn. And then it goes through the cycle again. I can't fall asleep. And I say, I will never do this again. You know, I wish, I wish that was the only weakness in my life. But I certainly have a lot of weakness and a lot of sin in my life. My heart is prone to lust, to anger. There are things that I do that I am ashamed of. And when I'm in my right mind, I say, I will never do that again. The consequences are so painful, so devastating. I will never do that thing again. And then the opportunity arises. And there again, I find myself falling back into sin. I don't know if you can relate to that. I don't know if there's anything in your life, maybe a harsh word that you said to the kids or a website you shouldn't have looked at. Or maybe it's just uh, an obsession with something, an anxiety or worry. And you said, God, I will never do that again. And you absolutely meant it. But then you find yourself falling back into that same old sinful pattern. In Proverbs 26, 11, it says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. 
Like a dog returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I can identify with that verse. I am a fool. I turn to sin time and time and time again. And so the question I want to ask today is, how do we break that cycle? That cycle of sinful, destructive behavior. How do we break that cycle? And the answer that we will see today is through true repentance. If you would please open up to Colossians chapter 3. It's page 984 in the Red Bible, page 1458 in the children's Bible. Last week, we looked at the end of Colossians 2, and Paul was addressing legalism in the church. And legalism is basically just creating your own rule book that you apply to yourself and to others to judge your spiritual condition before God. And we see that they take some very severe steps. They, they obey some Old Testament laws, which are no longer in practice, some dietary laws, as well as some ceremonial laws, some festivals, all to improve their status with God. We even see them, them, them having what's called asceticism, which is that they, that they hurt themselves, that they injure themselves. We, if you remember the words, it said, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All of these things in an effort to suppress sin in their lives that they might be right before God. And then at the end of this passage, the very final words of Colossians 2, Paul says this. He says, they, talking about all of their efforts, They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so the question I have is, how do we stop the indulgence of the flesh? Last week we saw it's by holding fast to the head, Jesus Christ. Today we're going to expand on that. What does it mean to hold fast to Jesus Christ that we may no longer fall into the indulgences of the flesh. Let's look together in Colossians 3. We'll read verse 1 through 11. And from it, seek that God would reveal to us how we might stop the indulgences of our flesh that are so destructive and so imprisoning. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these two, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no, not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, 
but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Lord God, it's uh, amazing to see how, how Paul has countered this through your Holy Spirit. On, on one week, he says, don't fall into legalism. But then on the other side today, he says, treat sin seriously. Do not fall into the passions of the flesh. Lord God, I pray that you would uh, create in our heart this morning an honesty, God, where we can lay before you our sin. God, I pray if there is, there is sin in our lives that, that we are chosen to ignore, uh, chosen to, 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 to give victory to and say, I'm defeated and there's nothing I can do, God, that we would once again bring it to the cross, Lord. And that today you could show us how we might have freedom in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So how do we break the indulgences of the flesh? Through true repentance. I want to give you a brief definition of repentance today. Much briefer than last week's definition. Repentance is simply two things. It is turning away from sin and turning to Christ. Can you remember that? Is that easy? Turning away from sin and turning to Christ. And so simply, that's what I want to go over today. Turning away from sin and turning to Christ. First, let's start with turning away from sin. What does it mean to turn away from sin? Well, in this passage, Paul addresses several sinful practices that exist in the lives of the people of Colossae. And they fit under kind of two umbrellas. The first umbrella is sexual sin, and the second umbrella we'll call social sin. And so I want to look at those two umbrellas quickly. First, turning away from sexual sin. Verse 5, Paul says, put to death. In other words, turn away, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Sexual sin abounded, abounds in the Christian church. It abounded in the church at Colossae. That's why Paul writes it here in verse 5. It abounds in the American church as we see in the news of the sexual immorality of priests and pastors. Sexual immorality abounds even here at Jacob's Well as we have honest discussions with one, one another. And uh, it even abounds in our own hearts as we are honest in examining our motivations and our desires. Sexual sin is rampant wherever we look, inside and outside the church. ABC News reported in January of this year that pornography has grown into a $10 billion business. A business doesn't grow like that if it has no customers. A $10 billion business that is bigger than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. This is not just a male problem either. One in three visitors to pornographic sites are women. Sexual sin goes much deeper than pornography. There can be perversion in many other ways. Uh, we were at a, a, again, the staff went to it together for the gospel conference a few weeks ago. And there was a gentleman there who wrote a book called, Is God Anti-Gay? His name was Sam Alberry, a very humble loving guy. And there was one statement that he made that rang in my ears that I will never forget. Sam said this. He says, don't forget, none of us are straight. None of us are straight. 
all of us has sexual perversion in our lives. And if for some reason we think we are better than some that has same-sex attraction, we're completely off base because none of us are sexually straight. All of us are sexually perverse. And therefore, we need God's help, God's grace to straighten us that we might repent of that sin. And so I quickly want to look at at Paul's list here of sexual sin, that we might see how this manifests itself in our own life. Because if you're here and you think you're not susceptible to this, I want you to see through this list how this infiltrates even your own life. Paul starts by talking about sexual immorality. It is actually the Greek word porneia, which is the word we get pornography from, but it replies to a general sexual immorality. Everything from pornography to an affair to lusting in your heart to sleeping with someone who is not your spouse. He goes on and talks about impurity, a filthy mind, one that is continually thinking about sexual things. Passion. Now, this word could be good or bad, but obviously here it's in a negative connotation. So a misplaced passion, a passion that belongs to someone or something else that you have placed on something that is not belong to you. Evil desires, these are forbidden desires, such as homosexuality or incest or rape or orgies or whatever it might be. Things that are forbidden from God. And he says, and covetousness. This is a love or preoccupation for something that God has, by his goodwill, given to someone else and not given to you. In the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's wife. Paul goes on to say, this is idolatry. Now, I want to take a brief minute to focus on this word idolatry because it's a word that I think we sometimes get confused. We think it's people that worship little statues that are on fireplaces or whatever it might be. But I want to make sure we understand what idolatry is. It was one of the questions I put out this week. I kind of like this. I put questions out on Facebook and people give me back better answers than I have. And what, what they said is idolatry is misguided affections upon an unworthy source. Misguided affections upon an unworthy source. One person said, idols are anything that we place ahead of God in our lives. Idolatry is false worship. Tim Keller defines idolatry as making a good thing an ultimate thing. What you see in all of these definitions is that it's not that we take something that is horrible and evil and worship it. What we do is we take a good thing and we exalt it above God. It's a misrepresentation of proper priorities. I remember Chad once said a few years ago, he said, whatever takes first place takes God's place. It's idolatry. So when we look at that definition, it is common sense to be honest, that sex and romance and relationships would be an idol that we are easily susceptible to. And here's why. When you look at creation, God created all things, right? And God created all things good. But then he created man and he created woman and he said, this is very good, right? The crown of creation was not the rivers. It was not the mountains, The crown of creation was not the sun or the moon or the stars or the solar system. The crown of creation was not the glorious expanses of the skies. The crown of creation was you. And it was me. It was men. And it was women. This is the crown of creation. This is is the, the, the culmination of creation. And so if we are not going to worship the creator, the next most logical thing we would worship is the crown of creation. 
Now, this, this might come in a lot of various forms, whether it be, uh, you know, worshiping people's view of you. But certainly one of the reason, ways that we worship the crown of creation is through sexual immorality. So the Apostle Paul identifies our sexual sin as idolatry, and he tells us to turn away from it. And he does it in very graphic terms. Paul says in verse 5, put to death. Put to death sexual sin. Do not manage it. Do not toy with it. Put it to death. Do you take the sexual sin in your life seriously? God does. Look in verse 6, he says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's not coming against you if you're in Christ. It has come against Christ. But the sexual sin of the people stirs the wrath of God. He takes it serious. Do you take sexual sin seriously? I don't know what it would mean for you to take it seriously. What it would mean for you to wage war against it, to put it to death. Maybe it means entering into an authentic relationship with someone to share your struggles. Maybe it means putting on some filters and areas to keep you away from things that you shouldn't be viewing or reading or whatever it might be. But we are to take this seriously. And so the first umbrella that Paul addresses is sexual sin. The second umbrella is social sin. Verse 7, Paul says, And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So in the first umbrella, Paul says, put it to death. That's what it means to turn away, put to death sexual sin. And this in this in this umbrella of turning away from social sin, he uses different terminology. He says, he says, in these two you once walk living in them. Now put them all away. It's literally the picture of taking off dirty clothes, right? And so Paul is saying, take these social sins, like dirty clothes, and throw them down the laundry chute, all right? And then he walks through them. And he says, and I just want to walk through them quickly as well so we can see how this might sprout itself in our own life. He says, put away anger. Anger, this anger that Paul is talking about is more of a permanent anger in somebody's life. Maybe people would characterize you as an angry person. This would be talking about you. Or maybe you just have a day that you're angry. I don't know about you, but I have those days where I'm angry at my wife. I'm angry at my kids. I'm angry at every other driver on the road. I'm even angry at like inanimate objects like, like, like keys. And, you know, like, why are the keys hiding themselves from me? What's wrong with them? Anyone? Anyone relate? All right. All right. And and what you see is in all of those, whether it be your keys, your wife, your kids, other drivers, there is only one common variable, and that is you, right? And so maybe the anger is within. And so he says, put away anger. He also says, put away wrath. This would be more of a temporary agitation. Maybe somebody sins against you and hurts you. And instead of responding to them in tender heartedness and compassion and love and grace and forgiveness as God has called us to, you respond with wrath. He also says, put away malice. Malice is the intention or the desire that someone would be hurt. 
Maybe it's a coworker that you really don't like or another student and that your hope for them is that they would fail. This is malice. Paul says we should put it away. Put away slander. It's interesting. The Greek word for this is actually blasphemia, which is the word we get blasphemy from, which is to, to, to misuse the name of God. And so he says, do not slander other people. Do not discredit their name before other people. I don't know about you, but this is really tempting for me in a lot of ways. You know, someone says to me, oh, I go to such and such church. Now, this is horrible. I know I'm just being honest. But if they say I go to such and such church, what I'm thinking in my head is what I want to say is, oh, you shouldn't go to that church because here's what's wrong with the pastor. Here's what's wrong with the church. Right. And usually by the grace of the Holy Spirit, I catch myself before I say any of those things. But our hearts are so prone to slander, isn't it? To, 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 so that so that what we might say might favor us. It says, put away obscene talk from your mouth, any dirty jokes or foul language or anything of that sort. And finally, do not lie to one another. Do not, do not lie. Do not tell half-truths in a way that makes you look better than other people. And so Paul says, put these things away. Of sexual sin, he says, put them to death. Many of you may remember the story of Aaron Rolston. In 2003, he went hiking in Blue Jaw Canyon in Utah, and he was an experienced climber. And he was way out, kind of away from everybody, and he jumped down off of this small cliff. And during it, he put his hand on this rock, and he didn't know it was loose. And it rolled down and actually pinched his arm uh, between a rock and a hard place, all right, between a boulder and the cliff. And so he was trapped there. And after six days of no food and no water, he could actually smell his hand rotting. He could smell it rotting. And he started to get angry. And he started to yell at his arm. He used to say, I hate you. You're garbage. I have to get rid of you. And then he did the most unimaginable thing. He took his dull pocket knife and cut off his arm. And as we think of that illustration, we think, man, that is unimaginable. I would never do something like that. I don't care what the consequences are, but it's so interesting to see Aaron's response to that. Listen to his words. This is just so fascinating to me. Aaron says this. He goes, to me, the amputation is the most beautiful experience I will ever have in my life because it comes from the stark contrast of being dead in my grave for six days And then I had my life back. Do you want your life back? The amputation of your sin is the most beautiful thing you can do. It it will be hard. It will be difficult. It might even be painful. But at some life, some, some, some point, we have to realize that our sin is keeping us in bondage, that our sin is rotten garbage, and we must cut it off, put it aside, put it to death, that we might walk in the freedom of the gospel. And so turning away from sin. So repentance is turning away from sin, right? But it's also turning to Christ. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, and the right hand of God. Set your minds or your affections on the things that are above and not on the things of this earth. 
See, what Paul says here is if you have been raised with Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are in relationship with Christ, if you are united with Christ, you have this great and glorious privilege, which is to seek Christ, to seek heavenly things, to set your mind on heavenly things. Now, in order for us to put sin to death, in order for us to have full and true repentance, we cannot simply turn away from sin. I don't know about you, but I've tried that. Let's just turn away from sin. But what happens is it comes back time and time again. We can't only turn away from sin. We must also turn to Christ. Because here's the thing. Just as God created your lungs to breathe, God created your heart to worship. Your heart worships every second of every day. As a matter of fact, every person's heart worships every second of every day. Your heart cannot stop worshiping. And so the question isn't if you will worship or if you won't worship. The question is, what will you worship? And so if you merely just take the sin out of your life that you're worshiping, there remains this vacuum, this hole, and you will certainly fill it with other things. Maybe you take sexual sin out of your life, but then you start working to all ends of the night to, to climb the corporate ladder and you re- neglect your family. Maybe you take social sin out of your life, but then you start filling your life with, with other things that are inappropriate. And so whenever we remove sexual sin, whenever we turn around, turn away from social sin, we must always turn to Christ to fill that void in our life because we will worship. And so we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. And Paul says we do this by remembering our union with Christ. In this passage, he points out a a past and a present and a future reality of our union with Christ. And I want to look at those briefly. First, our past Union with Christ. For those who are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you have a history with Christ. You have been united with Christ, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. That's why in verse 1, Paul says to us and reminds us, you have been raised with Christ. This is a past action. He's not talking about a future resurrection. He says, you have been raised with Christ. Now, how does thinking of our union with Christ, thinking of our resurrection with Christ, help us deter from sin? Well, Paul actually expands on this in Romans chapter 6 in a very helpful way, and I'll read it to you. It should be up on the screen as well. But Paul says this better than I could. Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For the death he, Christ, died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members of God as instruments for righteousness. In Colossians 3, in Colossians 6, it reminds us that we were dead in our sin, but that we have a new identity, that we have died with Christ and rised with Christ. That we are a new creation and that the old has gone and the new has come. Therefore, we must not continue in our sin like dead people. The last funeral I attended was my grandmother's. And 
I remember her sitting there in the grave, and I'm sorry, not in the grave, in the casket, and she looked beautiful. Um, she actually looked better than a lot of the people in the room. Um, the morticians did a great job, and she had was full of color. And um, boy, I hope they don't listen to this sermon. Anyways, um, but they did a great job making her look alive, right? But there was no fooling. I mean, she was in the casket. She wasn't walking around, talking, dancing, and singing. She was physically dead. You've probably seen it. And, And what Paul says here is, if you're alive, why would you lay down in a casket? If you're, if you're alive, why would you Sleep 24-7, six feet under. Why would you do that? You've been made alive. Live like a living person. Sing and dance and enjoy because you were once dead, but now you are alive. And so when the sexual sin comes and tempts you, when the social sin tempts you, you can say to yourself, that is what dead people do, but I have been made alive in Jesus Christ, and I want to live like I'm alive because I am. And so Paul reminds us of our union with Christ, that we are alive in Christ. One study Bible puts it very succinctly. It says this, Here the Apostle Paul is simply calling believers to become in practice what they are in principle, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And so we must look to our union with Christ, our previous union, our our being raised from the dead. But there's also a present reality to our union with Christ. Verse 3 Paul says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. In Christ, you have a new identity. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. You are hid in Christ in God. This means that the Father will treat you with all of the rights and all of the privileges and all of the blessings that belong to Christ because you are hid in Christ in God. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, an amazing thing happened. It's called, uh, it's called, uh, what's it called? Double substitution. What's the word? What's the phrase I'm looking for? Test. What is it? Double imputation. Thank you. Double imputation. I have it written down. Double imputation. And at the cross, what happened is Jesus Christ took on our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took on our unrighteousness and he paid for it in full. But he did that, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be hid in Christ. And so what we see is that we are hid in Christ's righteousness, hid in his perfection. But this also reminds us of the security that we have. We are hid in Christ, in God the Father. Jesus in John 10 reminds us, he says, he's talking about his sheep. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And he says, I and the Father are one. And what he is reminding us is that if you are in Christ, not only does Christ hold on to you, but so does the Father. You are doubly held on to, and there is nothing you can do or anyone else can do to snatch you away from the Father's hand. Now, how does this encourage us towards righteousness? How does this encourage us to put to death sin? 
maybe you would say, well, if I know that I'm going to be saved, if I know that, that if I'm in God's hands, I will always be saved, then I might as well go sin freely, right? But here's how the assurance of God's love for all of eternity encourages us to righteousness. God says, listen, I am enough. You need look no other place. I have you now. I'll have you today. I'll have you tomorrow. I'll have you forever. You need not look anyplace else for satisfaction because I have you in my hands and I am enough for you. And so Paul reminds us to remember and to believe that we are hid in Christ in God, that we would turn away from sin and turn to that glorious reality. And finally, there is a future reality of our union with Christ. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is an astounding promise that no matter how sinful you are, how many times you have messed up in the areas that we've talked about today, how many times you have said, I will never do that again, and yet like a dog returns to its vomit, you go back to it time and time again. What Paul says here is that if you are in Christ, that you appear with him glorious, spotless, complete, victorious. C.S. Lewis in a sermon, The Weight of Glory, says, if you could meet the dullest, most uninteresting person in the state they shall be when Christ returns, you would be tempted to bow down and worship them. That includes the person sitting to your right, sitting to your left. That includes the person sitting in your own chair if you are in Christ. And so we have this glorious promise of what is to come. We must turn away from sin and turn to Christ, remembering that we are united with Christ. We are united in his resurrection. We are hidden Christ, and we will appear with Christ again in glory. And he has satisfied all our needs, and that's why we need to look no place else other than Christ. Let me end with this. Turning away from sin... And turning to Christ is an act of faith. It's a battle. It's a fight. If you don't think it's a fight, you're probably just minimizing sin. You probably don't understand the depth of it. It is a fight daily, minutely, second by second. Turn away from sin and turn to Christ. You know, earlier this year, I went to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I scheduled in my schedule to have a little extra time so I could experience Arizona. I was there for a conference, and so I dropped some friends off at the airport, and then I went to go um, to this park, and I went to climb. It's it's not a hill. It's not a mountain. It's in between. Is there a word for that? You know, it's, what's that? No, there is. All right. A big hill, all right? I went to go climb a big hill or a small mountain, whatever sounds better, all right? So I went to go climb this big hill, and I remember looking up at the summit, if I can call it that, looking at the summit of this hill. And as I traveled uh, up this hill that was rocky, um, I twisted my ankles a few times. There was ups. There was downs, right? There were times that I ran. There were times that I sat. There were times where I walked level. But as I journeyed down this path, what I continued to do was look to the summit and remember, that is where I am headed. That's where I am going. And I kept my eyes there. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 summarizes what we learned today so wonderfully. 
It says this, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. It so easily entangles, doesn't it? And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us throw off our sin as we travel in this life and we look to the summit, Jesus Christ. There will be ups and there will be downs. You will sin. But we are destined for Christ. Christ is in us. As we turn away from sin, we must turn to Jesus and fix our eyes upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and find our satisfaction in him so that we will look no place else. Let me end with a segment from this hymn. It's a hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Has anyone heard this hymn before, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Okay, we've had a few. I've actually never heard it before. But it goes like this. I have? All right. Duly noted. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior. In life more abundant and free, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. God, as we are in this lifelong fight against sin, remind us that that you have given us repentance in which we can bring it to you and confess it. God, you are not surprised by the sin in our life, Lord. Lord, I pray for those here who have sin in their life that maybe is they, they've kept under wraps, that they, have, that they have buried deep, that they wouldn't have to deal with it. God, I pray that they would see the slavery that it is, God. That they would bring it to the service, Lord, and lay it at your feet, and they would start to go to war, God. That they would take sin as seriously as you would. That they would seek to put it off. That they would seek to put it to death. And as they turn away from sin, God, that they would turn to Christ, that the vacuum in their soul might be filled with the glorious good news of our union with Christ, Lord. Lord God, we need your help in this holy endeavor. We need your help to believe Christ in me, to believe that we are satisfied in him, that he has provided everything we need, and we need to look no place else. Lord God, I pray this week as we are tempted, whether it is to lash out at our children or our family or friends or neighbors or whatever it might be, as we're tempted to pursue lustful thoughts, God, let us remember that we have all we need in Christ. Draw to mind the sufficiency of your Son to satisfy our deepest and greatest longings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.